All right, hi everyone. Uh, so I'm Nicole Peterson, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for our SMA Stratcom Academic Alliance speaker session entitled Scenario Planning to Maintain the Credibility of US Nuclear Deterrent Against Emerging Threats. So today's presenters are former Ambassador Ron Lehman from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and retired Major, Major General Bill Chambers from IDA. Uh, so first, we have a few quick housekeeping items. We're going to still be holding a Q&A session after today's brief. So throughout the brief or just during the Q&A, feel free to submit your questions via the live event Q&A chat. It's the chat icon with two overlapping speech bubbles and one has a question mark. You can submit your questions anonymously if you'd prefer for your name not to be recorded or you can type in your name and affiliation before your question. So now I'm gonna turn the floor over to Ms. Julie McNally from US.com to provide a brief introduction. So Julie, over to you. Thanks, Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another SMA Stratcom Academic Alliance speaker session. Uh, Stratcom Academic Alliance was formed to develop an academic community of interest focused on research and analysis of deterrence, assurance, and associated strategic level national security themes in a rapidly changing multi-domain global threat environment. The Stratcom Academic Alliance speaker series is part of our effort to promote collaboration on deterrence among academics and the military. Today, we welcome Ambassador Ron Lehman and retired Major General Bill Chambers to talk about their report by the Threat Reduction Advisory Committee. The Honorable Ronald F. Lehman II is the Consular to the Director of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory for the State Department. He chairs the governing board of the International Science and Technology Center for the Defense Department. He was one of the original members of the Defense Threat Reduction Advisory Committee and was its chair from 2014 through 2019, having previously served as vice chair. Uh, Lehman was director of the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency from 1989 to 1993, and previously served in the U.S. Department of Defense as Assistant Secretary for International Security Policy, in the State Department as Ambassador and U.S. Chief Negotiator on Strategic Offensive Arms, and in the White House as Deputy Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. Major General William A. Chambers, retired Air Force, served in uniform for 35 years, culminating in duty as the Assistant Chief of Staff for Strategic Deterrence and Nuclear Integration at Headquarters U.S. Air Force in D.C. In that role, he directed the policy planning, advocacy, and assessment for Air Force nuclear weapon systems. Since retirement from active duty in 2013, he has worked at the De Institute for Defense Analysis, which provides studies for the DOD on a full range of national security issues. At IDA, he leads research teams focused on nuclear weapons policy and strategy, as well as strategic force structure, modernization, and nuclear enterprise infrastructure. Gentlemen, thank you so much for presenting your work to our community of interest today. I look forward to an interesting discussion. I'll turn it over to you now. Uh, thank you, Julie. Uh, uh, Mariah, could you go to slide two? Uh, General Chambers and I are, are really pleased to uh, join the Academic Alliance and uh, STRATCOM uh, today uh, to report on a, a track report that we completed last November. It had a, the long and interesting title of Scenario-Based Planning to Maintain the Credibility of the U.S. Nuclear Deterrent Against Emerging Threats. Uh, the way we're going to proceed uh, is because the uh, Nicole and the Alliance were uh, uh, kind enough to post the entire report and also our, our presentations on their website, we're going to be fairly brief. Uh, I'm going to explain a little bit about the track and uh, especially uh, the advantages and disadvantages of being a, a, a FACA, a uh, Federal Advisory Committee Act uh, uh, advisory group. Uh, and then uh, Bill is going to talk a little bit about the uh, 
uh, uh, tasking and the research environment in which we were dealing with and some of the findings, then I'm going to drill down a little bit because of the nature of this group on uh, wargaming and some of the uh, uh, examples of challenges and a little bit on metrics. And then Bill will give the recommendations and then we will uh, open it up for uh, discussion. Uh, uh, Mariah, next slide. Um, the, it's important to understand that the, that the Threat Reduction Advisory Committee does operate under FACA. Uh, that means that uh, there are extensive rules to deal with potential conflicts of interest. Uh, there are transparency rules, but there are also decision-making rules. And among those are that everything must be done by consensus. Uh, we had a, 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 a in your the backup slides to this uh, uh, presentation. You can see the names of all the distinguished members of the full track and the additional members who were added for the task force uh, that did this nuclear study. Uh, but it's important to understand that the report itself is uh, done by a committee with all the advantages and disadvantages, and it is done by consensus with all the advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but it's important to understand that uh, although this document um, has been cleared, uh, 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 by the Department of Defense. Uh, no FACA document represents the official positions or policies of the uh, US uh, government. So uh, with that background and with the caveat that while we, we had extensive uh, classified briefings, uh, the report is unclassified and I just wanna caution everybody and remind everyone we're in an unclassified uh, forum uh, today. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, uh, when, when, after Bill gives the recommendations, we'll open it up for questions. So if we could go to slide four, four and over to you, Bill. Thank you, Ambassador Lehman. And uh, thanks, Julie, Nicole, and Mariah for your support today and allowing us to present our findings. Um, regarding our tasking, it's important to understand um, the name of our task force, which as Ron indicated is quite a mouthful. The task force on scenario based planning to maintain the credibility of the US nuclear deterrent against emerging threats. In that name, you get a sense of the concerns of the department and the department principals who chartered our work. In essence, what they asked us to do is answer the question, how do we, how should we think about and plan for, and what analytic tools might we use to ensure a credible deterrent capability during the next 10 to 25 years? As you consider that, and what you see on slide four there, consider that our uh, the, the person, the principal who chartered us was Undersecretary Lord, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. She is, of course, charged and her and her acquisition and sustainment enterprise are uh, are laden with the responsibility to manage and oversee uh, a monumental modernization effort that is now underway. An enormous 25 year challenge whereby 
we are block modernizing our nuclear deterrent capability. Every leg of the triad, its command and control, it, all dual use capabilities, all being modernized along the same timeline. And she and her direct reports, who we met with periodically during this study, wanted to, us to help them understand what it is we don't know, what it is we need to know, and what tools are out there to help us. So the context, next slide, Mariah, slide five, please. The context of, of our work, uh, of course, is important. What, what is going on around us as this task force undertook its remit? And no matter which intelligence assessment or national strategy document you turn to, the context for this topic is, in a word, uh, complexity. At many levels, the deterrence challenge is complicated. The number of nuclear armed actors, the variety of advanced capabilities and technologies, the number of different scenarios where nuclear use might be plausible, all add multiple variables and multiple factors that have to be considered. Thus, tools are needed and tools are available. They may not be focused properly, they may not be tailored to this challenge, but our, our opening hypothesis was that there are analytic analytics available to tackle this challenge to tackle the understanding of the challenge. And our task force was struck basically with three central challenges. Over the next two to three decades, successive presidents will need to persuade successive legislative branch houses uh, that, that consensus for modernizing the nuclear deterrent is needed. Secondly, the fact that we've chosen to defer modernization to now and are doing it all at once leads to the distinct possibility that there might be a bad day. There might be a delay. There might be a legacy system that doesn't last. Thus, there would be a gap potentially in capability. And then thirdly, along this timeline, the threat in form of capabilities, in the form of doctrine, in the form of adversary thinking, that threat is continuously evolving. So with those central challenges in mind, that formed the context uh, for how we tackled this and uh, our hypothesis that there were tools available. Slide six, please, Mariah. During our, um, during our work, we did meet with Undersecretary Lord and her direct reports. And slide six indicates uh, some of the things we achieved, uh, some of the things we heard from them uh, as we went along. First of all, uh, Undersecretary Lord was very interested in, in some, some things that she can do. What, what, what are things that are needed? Some uh, actionable um, steps that can be taken by the department in this area. And then also, we were asked to help the department uh, with a narrative, that is, 
how do, how should we talk about deterrence? Because there are many stakeholders, there are many audiences, and the level of deterrence understanding, particularly in this era, has declined. The need to market, the need to educate, the need to motivate is important, and thus uh, we uh, felt, in, felt it important for the task force to spend some time to create a narrative about what is deterrence and what are the multiple factors in considering deterrence in this time. And if, you, and, and if you've had any time to look at the report, you'll know that in the center of the report and then in Annex A, a primer is provided uh, by which uh, the department can, can talk about this challenge. So that's the tasking, that's, that's the context in what, in what, uh, that surrounded our work. Uh, on to slide seven, findings. Our assessment is that current analytic tools in use are insufficient to provide the necessary insights to senior leaders to make the tough decisions that are going to be made over the next decade. The, the focus of existing tools currently is fairly narrow. There are probably too few, of, too few analytic tools in use and there is probably too little data available in which to make evidence-based decisions that the department will face. So improved and expanded use of analytic tools, for instance, wargaming, must, must be taken on not only to expand our experiential understanding of the challenge, but to also increase the, the sample size of data that is available to, to analyze and assess regarding deterrent capabilities. Lastly, on, on slide seven, uh, we, the task force felt compelled to put a note of urgency on this. Um, we are, have just entered uh, a decade of opportunity that we can't uh, that we can't waste. We have an opportunity in these coming years to make use of a suite of tools properly blended and knit together to help decision makers make the tough decisions needed to handle the central challenges to deterrence and the central challenges of our modernization profile. Going beyond these, the, these macro findings, slide eight discusses other aspects of what we came up with. Um, the complexity of the challenge is an important factor. The number of challenging scenarios that must be considered is changing. The number of technologies in the hands of adversaries um, in, in terms of adversary capabilities is continuing to advance. However, starting with China and Russia, there are scenarios that we can focus on. There are plausible potential uses of, nu of nuclear weapons by adversaries, and those must guide some, those must guide the application of these analytic tools 
to include wargaming. These scenarios are more challenging than traditional scenarios. These scenarios must include a host of what ifs that have to be considered. And it requires an increase, an enhanced, a better understanding of our adversaries, particularly those two adversaries. Their thinking, their capabilities, their perceptions, their decision-making. When you put great power competition together with expanded capabilities, both high-end conventional and new nuclear means, and potential new views of conflict by these adversaries, the salience of nuclear weapons has risen across the strategic landscape. Thus, analytic tools must be applied to that problem set. At this point, Mariah, if you could advance to slide nine and Ambassador Lehman will move from here. Uh, th thanks, Bill. Uh, General Chambers highlighted some of the uh, problems that were associated with uh, wargaming. And given this audience, we thought it might be useful if we uh, drill down just a little bit into some of the specifics and then to tie those a bit to the whole problem of deterrence uh, metrics. If I were going to give you my bottom line up front for, for this segment, it would be that traditionally there's a tendency in, in wargaming to contrast heuristic uh, games, games where you're training and learning, with stochastic games which are, are meant to be analytical. And uh, what I think we're trying to point out is that given the advances of technology and wargaming and the availability of new tools and, and the potential for even uh, uh, better tools, and given the complexity of the national security geostrategic environment today, multi-domain, multi-actor, multi-scenario, multi-region, uh, and uh, given the already strong tendency to want to integrate uh, uh, games with federations and alliances and networks, that this is a marvelous opportunity uh, to try to get organized to uh, do even better. Uh, Wargaming, of course, has an impressive history. Uh, it long predates the nuclear era. Um, uh, even these abstract board games like Go and chess and, and the, the board game of diplomacy can help train uh, strategic thinking. Not all war games that are of value uh, have to be complex, expensive, and electronic. Uh, even these simple games can expose players to some of the emotional stress and the uh, interpersonal dynamics that are involved in uh, in uh, making decisions and interacting uh, in a uh, political military environment. Uh, I used to joke that the game of diplomacy teaches you how to lie with a straight face. Uh, I don't know if that's an appropriate goal, but uh, it's it's certainly built into the game. Uh, obviously, we've had uh, several centuries of advance of uh, wargaming, uh, with real progress made in the areas of studies of troop movements and logistics. And today, what we really have seen is wargaming become more involved with uh, modeling, simulations, systems analysis, and even some integration with field exercises. 
And what we're faced with is the prospect that in the future, uh, with higher performance computing, high fidelity, virtual reality, uh, big data, machine learning, neural networks, you know the list, artificial intelligence, that we, we have some important opportunities. Now, it's important to recognize that DOD already conducts a lot of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, relatively high fidelity military exercises and war games every year. Uh, and there are a number of very well established and useful tools out there. Unfortunately, uh, uh, none of them can actually fulfill the kind of, of total um, uh, uh, holistic look at, at the challenges that uh, we think are going to be necessary to deal with the future environment. And one of the big problems is that they're very expensive and, and time consuming, at least some of them are. Uh, as a result, for the, the, the more uh, detailed exercises, you can't do very many, which means you often can't do very many scenarios at a, a, in a given year, uh, in a given time frame. And, uh, and even the learning experience in the games is often uh, constrained to those who participated in the game because it's sometimes not easy to pass on to others who are not directly involved uh, what was learned. And, and also, uh, the lessons are often uh, uh, applicable really only to the particular scenario and circumstances of the game. The, some of them are hard to generalize. Uh, sampling how one person made a decision in a single case uh, often falls short of understanding what that person might do in a different case, and it may tell us even less about what a different person might decide. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, when we looked at some of the results of, of many games over time, uh, there were some indications that the results were often heavily idiosyncratic uh, 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 based on the individual players. And this complicates uh, evaluating, using games to evaluate alternative doctrines, strategies, forces, weapon systems, because they're overwhelmed by the influence of these uh, personal uh, decisions. At the same time, we're not even sure that the, the data are representative of the real decision making because there are certain artifacts that are introduced into games uh, and, and real gamers understand this quite well. Uh, and one of the artifacts is that uh, people don't want to, for, for various reasons, don't want to reveal their, their hand. We may not want to have people know what we would do, but some people are embarrassed to say that they would have done X as opposed to Y. So there actually are some constraints in war games that, that, that um, have to be uh, dealt with. Uh, and yet our view was that uh, given the emerging technology, given the complex geostrategic uh, environment where different regions are involved, multi-dimensional, different cultures, different psychologies, it would be good if we could get more data, including the kind of, of uh, sample size, high fidelity data that you could use for what, what uh, is often called evidence-based decision-making. So as we've moved from sort of generalized plaster of Paris terrain, terrain boards and cardboard military units to holographic three-dimensional depictions of detailed real military assets, and those are digitally overlaid on actual locations with real-time weather and realistic weapons effects, it gives us an opportunity 
uh, to do more. That in fact, wargaming can be more than heuristic and more than analytical. You can bring it all together to train commanders, uh, evaluate personnel and units, compare strategy and tactics, plan real military operations, and even uh, assess existing weapon systems. And given our sponsor for this study, look at systems that are being considered for acquisition and see how well they help you with your problems. So uh, this can help uh, uh, prioritize acquisition and optimize even your uh, procurements and your logistics. Uh, and these new technologies uh, may uh, permit a, a, a more cost-effective approach, not only to our deterrence forces, but also to how we acquire uh, gaming and modeling and simulation capabilities and how we, we integrate them. Uh, if we could go to slide 10, but all of this, of course, is dependent on the question of, of what is it you're measuring? What's it all about? What are the metrics? And uh, Bill mentioned that in the report and in Annex uh, A, uh, we highlighted some of the issues that are uh, both quantitative and qualitative that might be measures of merit. Uh, and uh, I, I have to uh, note that in our work, what we found was that a diverse group of capabilities seemed to be very important. Uh, but that uh, led the track report to highlight a number of important ideas that are really sort of encouragement to apply uh, something of a precautionary principle. So the first is that the report notes that, a, and I quote, a single composite measure of merit for deterrence is unlikely to be reliable. Analysis of multiple measures of merit is necessary to account for the diverse views of the US, its allies, and its adversaries. Uh, and, uh, 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 we can debate that, that that would be a good discussion for to, to begin today, oh, but uh, it is a complex discussion. The second is uh, to deal with what quants call surrogation, which is the confusion of the metric with what it is it's supposed to measure. So we can say, well, we have a stockpile of X or we have so many weapons on alert, but those aren't the same things as direct measures of deterrence. Deterrence is bigger than that and assurance itself it may uh, be even yet another factor given different audiences. So surrogation, being cautious about surrogation was important. Uh, a third point is that <clears throat> as everyone in this uh, audience knows, predicting the future is hard, uh, but the better assumption is that you're going to be surprised. And so uh, we wanted to emphasize that uh, in evaluating war games, it's not about how well they predict the future, although in the history of war games, it's been amazing how often they've, they've gotten it pretty close. Uh, but it's rather to help you be agile and resilient and ready to deal with surprise. Um, and uh, that um, a, a fourth uh, a cautionary report is that uh, there's a tendency uh, to study our own navel in, in uh, uh, stare at our own navel in, in war gaming. You know, it's all about us our force structures, our operations. But one of the key values of wargaming is actually to assess the other side, avoid, avoid stereotyping, avoid mirror imaging, but try to really capture uh, the importance of decision-making on the other side. And finally, uh, a major 
caveat that I think was something that emerged out of our work, and that is if we don't exploit these uh, new opportunities to enhance wargaming, we may be living in a world in which somebody else is, and that in fact they will go use these tools to go to school on us and uh, to find uh, strategies and tactics and and uh, and systems that uh, that uh, will be highly leveraging against us. That in short, uh, we need to be playing in this arena and we need to be getting better, not worse. Uh, this may be one of those realms. Uh, 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 to, to quote Deming, that if you're, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. Uh, so with that, uh, let me turn uh, back uh, to uh, Bill, and if we could go to slide 11, uh, Bill will discuss the recommendations. Thanks, Ron. Um, the task force's recommendations uh, are, are on slide 11 in concise form, the report uh, explains them with some elaboration, but first and foremost, the task force believes that the department needs to build a roadmap um, the, for, for modeling simulation and gaming. Current modeling simulation and gaming efforts um, are being employed, but they are scattered across the department in, in, in the services, in various program offices, in, in labs, and um, the capabilities of those tools have to be brought together in a coherent way in a plan, in a plan that needs to be done quickly and help guide the department during this next critical decade. It has to be a plan for the tools that we need the most. There are a lot of tools out there. There are a lot of modeling and simulation and gaming capabilities. Not all of them are needed, but the ones that apply to this challenge need to be systematically knit together. The tools, the platforms, the venues to increase the sample size of our understanding of this problem and to garner the high quality insights that we need. A blend of both quantitative and qualitative, a blend of old, new, old tools and new tools, um, and, and not, not everything that's out there is suited, but with a little bit of work, we can find the ones most suited to this challenge and most worth the money. Um, these tools ought not adhere to a soda straw view of this challenge. Um, the tools need to not, for instance, adhere to a big, bold, bright line between conventional and nuclear, which is typically how uh, games and simulations are currently conducted. Um, at the moment of nuclear use, the game is over. Um, that we need to get past that because plausible, perhaps limited, but plausible nuclear use by adversaries needs to be gamed out, needs to be assessed and analyzed. And, it, and these scenarios can't be restricted to one particular domain, nor can they set the command and control issue aside. Nuclear command and control uh, and its blend with conventional command and control in potentially a regional conflict where limited nuclear use by the adversary is plausible, that all needs to be teased out. Lastly, the, the, 
this roadmap needs to cut across uh, organizational stovepipes um, and, and territorial sanctuaries. Um, there is perhaps no perfect place in the department for this to be done, but there are aspects of modeling simulation and gaming throughout the department and a, and a, a culture and a compelling narrative needs to be needs to be set forth such that all these players, uh, uh, government program offices, government labs, FFRDCs, university affiliated research centers, all have an opportunity to offer what might apply and then a central person to build a roadmap to knit those together. We, the task force really believes that this roadmap needs to also support strategic decision-making. We, we heard from not only the person that gave us our remit, but many others who are, who are struggling with the evidence, the data, the analysis that's, that's digestible and usable by senior leaders to make some of the tough calls that are gonna be needed in the coming decade. So the roadmap should encourage use of advanced tools. It needs to go beyond just the three legs of the triad. It should include our dual use systems. It should include the, the potential challenges to decision-making both in, both in crisis and in acquisition. And it should cover the spectrum of potential nuclear use. The task force was also pretty adamant about this roadmap, including modeling and simulation and gaming that includes what if scenarios. As we look ahead over the next 10 to 25 years, there are a number of bad days that we ought to be gaming out and analyzing now. What if we lost the leg of the triad? What if we lost an ally? What if we lost a particular domain, a particular capability, conventional or nuclear? What if we face a different type of opponent who has very different values in decision-making, particularly decision-making about nuclear use? So we should, have, we should explore some, as, as Ron indicated, some of those plausible game changers, those potential surprises out there. And that should be included. The tools capability should, should, should be able to cover that sort of contingency in this roadmap. Lastly, the task force was also very clear about it's not, it's not necessarily about the tools, it's about asking the right questions. And to quote from our report, asking the right questions is more important than the tools to generate the answers. And so people that are, that are steeped in deterrence, understanding policy and capabilities need to sit side by side with people that are smart about, about big data and analytics and gaming and simulation so that together, uh, this multifunctional, multidisciplinary approach to this roadmap um, is, is employed. I will stop there and we have plenty of time for questions. And I will open it up now uh, to Q&A and I believe uh, Nicole, you are the master orchestrator of incoming questions. Yes, okay, thank you. Um, so Ron, would you like to put your, uh, your screen on for the, the Q&A. All right, let's see here. Can you see me? Is this? Not yet. Not yet. 
How about now? Yeah. Okay. I, let me okay. just make one comment, which is uh, Bill and I have on a, a number of occasions and on our slides quoted directly uh, from the report. Uh, but uh, uh, especially in the Q&A, remember that anything we say is our personal views and uh, not necessarily those of the track or uh, any organizations which, which we are or once were uh, affiliated. So these are our personal views, but I would urge you to talk to the other members of the track and uh, to the people we talk to, uh, because I think uh, uh, a lot uh, has been uh, perhaps affected by the pandemic, but now I think is a very good time to prepare your inputs and get them ready. All right, thank you. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead with our first question in the Q&A chat. Uh, so the first question is, do you envision or do you recommend the U.S. to restart underground testing of nuclear weapons to both ensure our weapons still work as designed and to show the world that our nuclear weapons are still relevant? <laughs> I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, the answer is uh, we didn't deal with that in the track study. Okay. Um, so our next question is from Dana Ayer from SOSA. Um, and he said, did you have a social scientist on the panel or was there explicit consideration and inventory of the psychological and the social or political theories employed in thinking about deterrence? I can, uh, I can answer that. Uh, and Ron, you can chime in. Um, I was extremely, um, we were extremely blessed by the members of our task force because of the blend of their talents. We did have social scientists and uh, physicists and weapons designers um, uh, all in the same room wrestling with this remit. And so, um, yes, our task force consisted both of both qual and quant, if you will. And uh, we believe that that sort of approach in building this roadmap of tools is, is appropriate. Ron? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, there is a sense in which uh, the uh, the early age of deterrence uh, analysis and theory was dominated by uh, uh, not just the emergence of systems analysis, but uh, of uh, uh, econometrics. Uh, and in a sense, uh, the economists are still having their impact, but it's uh, increasingly in the realm of behavioral economics decision making. And uh, uh, again, uh, the uh, the ability to understand that uh, at at some degree we're talking about organizations operating and decision making. In other cases, we are really are talking about personalities, and psychology becomes very important. And I would I would also tack on to that the fact that the task force did hear from people who believe that that the exploration of social science and some new empirical methods of social science um, to include the heuristics of decision making, uh, to include meta-analytic techniques of, of looking at wargaming, if we can increase the sample size of nuclear war games, um, all have merit and uh, we've included some of those uh, comments in our report. 
Okay, our next question is from Robert McCrate at George, at George Mason University, and he says, how does the track report treat the divergence between tactical and strategic systems in assessing future threat environments and war game scenarios? Well, uh, again, uh, uh, we did not revisit uh, uh, the basic uh, uh, policies and definitions. Uh, clearly, uh, it, it, at one level, uh, it's U.S. policy to understand that the nuclear threshold is a big thing, and anything that crosses the nuclear threshold has uh, something of a strategic dimension. On the other hand, many of the scenarios involve uh, different levels of use, uh, different sizes of weapons, different targets, and uh, we tried in the primer to to capture the fact that that you're going to have to deal with uh, many more different scenarios than people have traditionally liked to to summarize and uh, in the future. Uh, so we didn't actually address that specific question, but we did point out the kind of diversity that's inherent in your question. Yes, and, and as Ron indicated, we were not uh, asked to question the program of record, um, but uh, I would add that the task force was very clear that any suite of analytic tools that tackle this challenge must include more than just the triad, must include, uh, for instance, dual capable aircraft, must include command and control, um, and the scenarios that we discuss in the report include uh, the use of some of our own dual use platforms. Um, uh, most of you are aware, of course, that the bomber fleet is a dual capable fleet, as is um, a NATO dual capable aircraft in Europe. Um, and uh, plausible scenarios that might prompt limited nuclear use by an adversary will stress those dual use capabilities of the US. And most games do, have not yet ventured into that, into the stress of that capability, and we would encourage it. Okay, our next question is from James McHugh from DITRA, and he said, classification is a major challenge to building or conducting integrated nuclear war games, including both conventional and nuclear personnel. And in dealing with this issue, he's, con he's considered building a game environment which uses generic weapon capabilities both nuclear and conventional, in order to break down that barrier somewhat? And would such a game environment be feasible to create and or be beneficial to decision makers? Well, let me let me say that to, to, to some degree, um, um, uh, there have been efforts to do unclassified versions, even in the nuclear realm, uh, and make them available. Um, and um, in all candor, uh, a lot of people in, uh, who have access to uh, the classified world uh, will uh, use those themselves uh, when they are in an unclassified environment uh, to uh, do some sanity and parity checks and, uh, and, and some uh, trying to think out of the box. Having said that, uh, there is a problem that, that those of us who are on the inside have in dealing with the outside, which is in many cases, uh, we are uh, constrained in our ability to uh, use unclassified numbers when we have access to the classified numbers. These are, uh, so there are some classification issues that are gonna 
going to uh, need to be dealt with. Uh, another issue that's related to that is uh, one can imagine either with your allies or conceivably even with uh, potential adversaries doing uh, joint games. And one of the problems is that different countries around the world have different uh, classification rules and uh, things that are classified in one country are not classified in another. And this creates awkwardness. Uh, I could go on with the list, my, my, but I don't want to discourage you. I think the answer is we need tools that people can use, uh, uh, including uh, uh, quick, cheap, easy tools for, for field use, uh, plus more intricate, expensive, long-term tools uh, for use in the classified environment. I would, I would second Ron's point about not discouraging you because I think there is another aspect of this challenge, which is we also need to increase the size of the, of the uh, government uh, population that is dealing with this challenge, and perhaps your generic weapon game could expose a larger population of military officers and civilians to this challenge um, in an unclassified environment. Uh, it, it is one of our it is one of our challenges. The number of people that wrestle with this challenge has declined, and uh, an entirely new generation must must be built uh, behind us uh, to tackle this. And getting that population size larger with a generic game that's unclassified would be a wonderful uh, tool. Okay, our next question is from Jeff Forden from the Sandia National Labs, and he says the next generation NC3 is being designed conceptually right now. Is it off to a false start without these tools? And how long can we afford to wait to move ahead on the next gen NC3 for these tools to be developed? Um, Ron, you can jump in here, but I, um, I can't. I can't not address an NC3 question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, it's a great point. I, uh, the next generation of NC3 capabilities, I, I think uh, there is a common consensus now that it is not going to be a set set of capabilities that is defined in a point of time, that we are going to iteratively and and in an evolving way, develop NC3 capabilities. Um, developing those capabilities in that evolving iterative way does require analytic tools, and it requires those tools to be integrated with the same tools that are being used to develop the capabilities of our delivery platforms. And um, I would, I would argue, uh, and our report argues this to a degree that um, those things need to be integrated because they're not right now. And so, um, uh, I think I think it's a great it's a great question. I don't think the the development of NC3 next gen can wait for this roadmap and this knit together set of analytic tools to happen. It has to move forward, but it has to along the way take advantage of uh, a department effort to 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 in fact lash together the right suite of tools. Yeah, I I, uh, I would agree with uh, that uh, uh, strongly. Um, we often will hear people say, 
Well, we're living in a totally new world uh, of cyber. And, uh, and yet, uh, uh, and people want to know, how do we game that? Well, there's a, the, the first irony is that, uh, in fact, cy uh, cyber is, is, is essentially part of the digital revolution. And that's precisely how we're looking to game. Uh, but the second irony is that so many people have forgotten the whole realm of the electromagnetic spectrum and electronic warfare. And in fact, there are a lot of tools out there that deal with the electromagnetic spectrum of radars and jamming and communications. And uh, all of those really do uh, uh, offer opportunities as we do the next NC2, NC3, uh, uh, NC4, ISR, or whatever the current uh, collection of names is going to be. Uh, there are tools already out there that should be exploited. We're just saying there's more opportunity even than that. Okay, our next question is, can you discuss your thoughts on how games or simulations can help inform a better understanding of the, of the escalation ladder and the best way to build off in ramps? Uh, and this person says, I think that this can help leaders understand their biases and heuristics to include when they do think rationally. Well, I, I think that's an incredibly uh, wise question. Uh, it goes right to the heart of, of the problem which is that uh, without the real gaming experience and the exposure to different scenarios and different what ifs, different thought processes, different adversaries, uh, there's a tendency to be a self-licking ice cream cone. And uh, you really do need to have the challenge that, that comes from that. Uh, uh, it's often difficult to talk in public about what happens in in particular war games and as as our report uh as the track report says uh you know one of the one of the problems is that uh individual uh, uh incidents are not necessarily uh a source of uh of uh, evidence-based uh, or, or uh, uh 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 experience-based uh decision making uh having said that uh it is amazing how many times in a game somebody will presume that a certain act will be seen as as being uh, uh, limited uh, when the other side may not see it that way. Uh, in some cases, uh, 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 the psychology may be exactly the opposite. It either is seen as more threatening or it may be seen as basically burying your neck and surrendering. Uh, how do you get that right? Well, it's a frightening prospect that that we probably don't know as, uh, but uh, we certainly need to if we're going to find ourselves in these situations ever. Yeah, I would second Ron's point. That was a tremendous, it is a tremendous question. It is one that should drive the development of this roadmap because we must insert plausible scenarios that involve exactly what you're talking about, uh, that go beyond a scenario that goes beyond first use in a limited regional conflict, for instance. What, what happens next? Play the game out instead of stopping it at that point. And, um, and of course, uh, your point about uh, perceptions and unknown heuristics puts a premium on our study of the adversaries, which also has to, the, the game of studying our adversary has to be, has to be up. We got to up our game in understanding 
how they think about conflict and how they think about potential uh, nuclear use. And that has to come into our games with a very informed red. The, 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 the side that's playing red has to be carefully selected. And, and the adjudication has to be carefully done. And perhaps there are some uh, machine learning techniques to help in adjudication. Perhaps there are some good empirical methods of social science to test, to, to, to consolidate uh, the heuristic behavior of adversaries. But again, back to one of my central points, we've got to increase the sample size. The, the task force heard from folks who are compiling the results of existing nuclear war games that have taken place over the last 10 years. And there are some significant gains, and we can learn some things from them, but there's just not enough of them. And, and there is a precious few that get at your point, which is testing what happens in an escalating regional conflict. Thanks. Okay, our next question is from Dr. Claudio Chaffee. Um, and he says, the report is clear about the need for advanced simulation and gaming tools. Did the TF also identify current gaps in analytical tools? such as gaps in mathematical tools? And does the TF assess the current state of applied mathematics to nuclear deterrence, especially multipolar, uh, yeah, multipolar nuclear deterrence as sufficient or as deficient? Uh, if that's coming from a mathematician, uh, uh, if you can help us with the nth body problem, I think we'll solve it all. Uh, but, uh, 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 I have a fondness for mathematics, and uh, I think the answer is that uh, uh, we draw from mathematics, whether it's simple or, or complex, uh, by analogy, but we also do use the tools analytically, and they have expanded. And of course, one of the ways they've expanded is by, by their interaction uh, with the digital revolution and, and high-performance uh, computing. Um, whether or not we will get a phase change in how we think about things based on uh, a development in abstract mathematics, uh, I don't know, but it has happened many times. Uh, the history of science and technology and, and even of uh, philosophy and, and policies and politics have been influenced by developments in abstract mathematics. What will happen here, though, is beyond my capability to, to answer. Okay, um, so our next question is from Abraham Wagner, um, and he says, what consideration was given to other current or emerging nuclear powers other than Russia and China? For example, India, Pakistan, uh, Israel, Iran, DDRK, etc. Uh, more than likely, they will use nuclear weapons in the next 25 years. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I will let Ron chime in, but just the task force did did address that topic. Our mention and our call out of Russia and China, of course, is that you have to you have to start with your focus there uh, because of the nature of the threat. Uh, but you cannot cause that focus to divert you from other uh, other regions of the world and other uh, and other rivalries in the world where uh, one or both actors are nuclear armed and it will it will draw uh, the US uh, to have to act and um, it, it ought to be part of 
of the, the scenarios that um, an enhanced gaming and simulation capability uh, addresses. Um, uh, you're exactly right that, um, that, that the salience of nuclear weapon use by other actors has likely increased and may continue to increase over the next decade, and it has to be part of what we wrestle with in our scenarios. Yeah, uh, I think Bill gave a, an excellent answer uh, to the question. I might add a, a, a footnote, which is uh, we had some very good discussions of, of uh, the diversity of players and uh, the, the idea of different uh, uh, cultures and psychologies and different uh, interests and, and therefore maybe different rules for their strategy. And uh, it really highlighted in our discussion of the non-Russian, non-Chinese scenarios, the dangers of both mirror imaging, but also of stereotyping. Uh, in many cases, uh, you're dealing with countries that don't have a long history of having chewed on these issues. And therefore, uh, the prospects that uh, uh, something uh, different than what you would have expected by the extrapolation of certain rules could happen. Uh, so, uh, uh, again, good question, and uh, it's, a, it's an important driver in our recommendations. Okay, um, our next series of questions are from Paul Bernstein from NDU. Uh, so, first of all, he said, thank you, Ron and Bill. Uh, so, his questions are, the best is the, in the best outcome, you'll have the capacity to do only some of what is needed in terms of more and better gaming. So, in keeping what, what Bill said about asking the right questions. Have you prioritized the strategic problems that you would want to address? And second, if more data and sample size implies engaging with a broader cater than just relatively small, uh, relatively small community of deterrence experts, how do you account and correct for a potentially wide variance of knowledge and experience among players, given that you want just not more data, but high fidelity data? Well, as always, uh, Paul Bernstein challenges uh, challenges us with great questions. Um, I appreciate that question, Paul, and um, you're exactly right. The, the task force's charter was broad. Its recommendation is, is wide, and it eventually, if, if, taken up by uh, an agent of the government to, to, to build such a roadmap, it will have to be prioritized. Um, uh, and although there are many tools available, um, they're not all suited for this challenge, and not all organizations that have developed them are suited for this challenge. Uh, so the department has to be selective um, and um, and <laughs> the conundrum of your of the left of the second part of your question is how do you increase the sample size of games and increase the population of people capable to play them if the, if the level of experience is so wide and variable um, I think uh, with the right tools in an increased sample size you can using some empirical methods that we 
touched on a little, um, you can sort of uh, account for those variances. But you may also have to sector out your gaming uh, for, for the novices, for the mid-career folks, for the senior decision makers, and you may have to hit each of those audiences in a slightly different way. Yeah, I, I think we were uh, a, a bit hesitant to uh, tell the department what their priorities should be on all things. Uh, there is a sense, though, in which um, um, whenever <clears throat> whenever a program is is being uh, 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 advanced, um, some resources are set aside for contingencies. Well, there's a sense in which uh, uh, having these analytical modeling, simulation, and gaming tools um, uh, is also a part of the contingency. What if something happens? What if it changes? Uh, you may have to adjust your priorities uh, or at least your actions to reflect uh, uh, how you get uh, different ways to get to get to your goals. Uh, on the second uh, question, um, uh, there's a certain irony here is that there's a tendency in my experience, but again with a, our basic caveat that sample sizes are way too small, there's a tendency that the more you work on a problem together with other people, the more you tend to converge on a common understanding of how to deal with it. And then when you bring in somebody new, uh, they do wild and crazy things. And at first you may think they're stupid uh, until you discover that you hadn't thought of that. Uh, and so having uh, 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 basically uh, uh, naive players is sometimes a part of the analytical and learning experience, but it also means that hopefully you're bringing a broader group of people. Anyway, uh, uh, back to you all. Okay. Um, Bill, do you have an extra few minutes to continue uh, to continue answering questions? I asked Ron before the talk, um, but we can go up to 15 minutes over the hour. Yes, I have some time. Thanks. OK. All right, well, we'll go on to the next question then. Um, so younger generations have grown up in a world relatively free of the threat of nuclear destruction, at least in the public eye. How do you maintain a national urgency for mo the modernization of nuclear deterrence to a growing segment of the population that's unaware of its importance? Uh, tremendous question. Uh, and that question was in part behind uh, the undersecretary's charter to us when we met with her once to provide a, um, a narrative uh, a framework of words by which you can talk about this problem with with a public that uh, doesn't spend much time in this area. Um, so uh, I am a huge um, believer that this that the department must do better at educating and motivating uh, key audiences. Obviously, one key audience is Congress, and um, uh, Ron can speak to this more expertly than I, but uh, the days of uh, clear and vocal champions for deterrent capability in Congress uh, have certainly changed. And, um, and, um, and, it's in, and the department is finding itself 
starting with some audiences in Congress, you know, sort of with square one. This is this is why this is important, and this is why we must deal with it. Um, uh, so there's uh, there's no easy answer. I would I have always advocated, however, for uh, department leaders to be to be more vocal, to be more engaged with key influential uh, organs of the uh, of the media and of the research and think tank organizations and of academia, so that they are more visibly out there and talking about this challenge. Um, but that takes takes time. It takes uh, and it, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I've, I've liked to say, uh, I've said it a number of times, including at Stratcom, that uh, there's so much happening in the world that we, we have a tremendous learning curve and we all need to focus on what's changed and uh, how we assess that. But at the same time, I'm always appalled at how deep the forgetting curve is, how many people simply uh, don't understand uh, the history, the issues, uh, but as long as we have problems out there, uh, I think that you will see tremendous oversimplification and polarization until you engage people on trying to solve problems. And then uh, as you actually step into uh, uh, problem solving and bring people in, uh, so that's how you may find your way. So uh, uh, I'm hoping that when we sit down and, and uh, 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 with whether it's uh, uh, people new to the issue or people who uh, haven't thought about it in a long time but used to be fairly sophisticated, that we will discover that there are some real issues we need to work together and we need to bring all of our experience and skill sets together. Okay, so our next question is from Julie McNally from Stratcom. Um, and she says, while understanding the emphasis of the report is not on the tools themselves, I wonder how you can see machine learning fitting into the wargaming design. Well, one, one of the issues, I mean, it, it, in a number of ways, but one of the problems that, that we've had is um, that we, if we want to avoid mirror imaging, if we want to avoid stereotyping, uh, look at how uh, machine learning and uh, and AI have uh, been playing in games that have gone from checkers to chess now to go, uh, where uh, the performance is uh, uh, equal to or exceeds uh, what uh, the masters uh, do, and they have sometimes introduced non-intuitive uh, ways of solving problems. So one answer is that if you assume your adversary uh, is always going to follow a certain pattern and that's what they've done historically, that's one kind of analysis. But what if you assume that your adversary, maybe because your adversary has access to these kinds of modern uh, uh, gaming, does something that wasn't intuitive, that you didn't expect. Uh, so machine learning could actually help us in an area like that. Uh, in other words, you could play the machine 
and uh, you can uh, temper the machine to be culturally this way or culturally that way or psychologically this way or psychologically that way and and get some data. Uh, that's that's just one uh, type of application. But I think uh, we're all wondering where machine learning and artificial intelligence is going. Uh, I like to say that um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence is not new. I knew lots of people who had it. Uh, but uh, in time, uh, it really uh, could turn out to be uh, that these, uh, and along with big data, are, are, are very important tools to improve the cost effectiveness of gathering the data from which we can stochastically uh, influence our own decision making. Yeah, and Julie, it's a great question. Uh, the, just br very briefly, the task force did uh, did discuss some of the, some of the modern applications of machine learning to other problems, be it Watson at Jeopardy or um, or uh, various uh, AI uh, applications that have won at Championship Poker. Um, uh, the Poker Challenge obviously has some uh, some parallels to the Deterrence Challenge. But um, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the engine behind the game itself. It could be a tool used in adjudication. It could be a tool, it could, machine learning could be a tool used in meta-analysis of, of, of a large sample size of war game insights, for instance, um, uh, it, instead of actually uh, you know, running the game itself. Okay, our next question is from Mark Susan, um, and he says, did this, did, did this assessment consider the role that AI may play in the development of an MNS road, uh, roadmap? And if so, can you share those insights? Uh, uh, we didn't, we didn't, spell out the role of AI in this roadmap, we did include um, in our larger description of what this roadmap should do, we did include that it ought to explore the utility of machine learning and AI. Um, it, was, it, it was an endorsement of an exploration of that capability for this roadmap. Um, but it was also, but it came with a sort of a, a caveat that said, um, any machine learning or AI tool applied to this challenge must be uh, developed alongside people who understand the right questions to ask. And, and those typically are people that are skilled either in the adversary, in, in nuclear armed adversaries themselves or in um, the operations of, of nuclear deterrence or in skilled in allied perspectives, uh, those sorts of people need to be uh, seated, seated alongside those that are developing AI-enabled tools to help in this challenge. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, we had a lot of discussion of AI, but as you know, this is a, a big and, and uh, uh, complex uh, area. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the uh, issues of AI uh, is uh, that um, 
it, it, it's a, it's a, it clearly is a valuable tool, but there's the, the sort of the black box problem. What happens when AI gives you an answer and you don't know how it got the answer, so you're not sure how to validate it, and the only way to validate it is, exper uh, is with uh, real-world experience, and you don't have a lot of that uh, in these areas. So there, there is sort of the epistemological problem of dealing with AI. There are also, of course, uh, the uh, uh, policy issues related to AI, the, the, the man in the loop type of issues. But there's another question about gaming, and that is the degree to which you want to uh, use gaming actually to evaluate AI and see what it's worth, uh, uh, what it can contribute. Uh, I think that AI is not new, but it is actually uh, we're on the threshold of some major new uh, capabilities, and I'm not sure we understand yet completely how best to use those, but we sure, clearly have to look at them. Okay, um, our next question is from Eva Uribe from Sandia National Labs, um, and she says, does your approach consider cyber threats to key military information systems that may increase ambiguity or uncertainty in decision-making, for example, by increasing doubt that certain capabilities or assets would be available to gamers? The answer is yes. Um, the cyber domain and the cyber, uh, the domain in which cyber operates, and cyber tools operate, and the cyber threat to our systems, be they command and control or platforms, it's clearly one of the complicating factors that must be considered and um, uh, the, the barriers to including cyber threats and the use of cyber tools in games uh, are, are, exist for, for some good reasons. However, uh, we, we need to figure out a way to give both uh, experiential learning in uh, the effects of cyber tools used by the adversary and potentially cyber tools used by us um, uh, and incorporate those into games uh, to date, but those have been very limited. Yeah, uh, we, we, we had a lot of discussion of cyber and uh, the uncertainties that uh, cyber introduce, uh, but uh, it, it's not as if uncertainty and the fog of war are new. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, any uh, strategy and tactic has to uh, apply uh, uh, certain uh, uh, procedures and methods to deal with that, that uncertainty. I mean, the history of warfare, whether it's uh, messaging at the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War or what, what happens in, at Porkchop Hill in Korea when headquarters doesn't get it. Uh, everybody's communicating, but they're misinterpreting what's what's really happening. Uh, one of the themes of modern uh, military training, uh, commander's intent, um, is uh, it sounds like a simple, uh, simplistic uh, 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 idea, but it, it, it's, it's designed to deal with what happens when the fog of war and change circumstances and bad communications uh, happen. Well, in the nuclear area, we, we, did, we want it to be even tighter. So obviously, cyber is another source of threat, but it's, it's not the only source of threat. Uh, uh, loss of space assets, uh, 
uh, other other physical damage. Uh, these all can uh, can can be factors too. Okay, um, so unfortunately we reached the end of our Q&A session. Um, we did receive many other questions that were not addressed. Uh, so feel free to email me, um, if you uh, Nicole Peterson, if you received an invite from SMA, or Julie McNally, if you received an invite from us.com uh, with any questions that you had that weren't addressed and we'll pass them on to Ron and Bill. Uh, but thank you everyone for dialing in today and for joining us on Microsoft Teams. And thank you again, Ambassador Ron Lehman and Major General Bill Chambers for taking the time to present. So thank you everyone. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nicole. Bye-bye.